Our study this afternoon is going to be from Romans chapter 1. We're beginning a series uh, on the book of Romans. And I want to read the first seven verses. But once again, before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this marvelous book. And uh, we pray that as we look into it, as we are encouraged by it, uh, you would help us uh, to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the, it's actually the second time that I've uh, begun to preach through the book of Romans. Uh, the last time I did that was about 10 years ago, so some of you old timers will remember perhaps us doing that. Um, and I'm well aware that uh, there are parts of the Bible that we have not yet ever touched in, in my time here in Solihull. Um, however, I, I do believe that any church that... Uh, considers itself to be a gospel-believing church, needs to have a good knowledge of this book of the Bible. Uh, So we are a gospel-believing church, and so we're going to visit Romans once again, and uh, I hope you don't mind. But it's a, a book that's played a significant part in the lives of many Christians down the years, um, some of them very well known, uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century, was something of a, an immoral womanizer um, as a young man. But he was uh, released from the burden of knowing that God held his sin against him by reading some verses from Romans. And his life was changed. He discovered that through the gospel, he could be free of the burden of the guilt of his sin. Likewise, in the 16th century, Martin Luther who was then a teacher of scripture, uh, was for many years burdened by the sense that he could never be righteous enough, no matter how much he, he tried. Yet wonderfully he came to discover that Jesus Christ offered to him a righteousness from God that could be his by faith alone. And thereby all the anxiety that he had suffered for years was taken away as he entered into the joy of salvation. And shortly after that great discovery was the time, this was happening between 1513 and 1516, uh, this great transformation as he was preaching through Galatians and then Romans. And then 1517, 
finally nailed those 95 theses or statements of his beliefs onto the, the gates of the, the castle church in Wittenberg. Uh, and thus the Reformation began. And one could go on telling stories of uh, the place of Romans in various people's lives. But Romans is a life-changing book. Uh, for those who have eyes to see it and ears to hear, it's wonderful message. Let me just give you some background to the letter. Um, the opening few verses tell us that the letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Uh, scholars tell us that he was probably writing round about AD 57, give or take a couple of years. And dur- that was during the time of his third great missionary journey uh, that Luke tells us about in Acts chapter 18, 26 onwards. We haven't quite got there in our midweek Bible studies. Uh, but in his third journey during that time, Paul wrote to the church in Romans. And if you, if you flip over to chapter 15, Paul tells us why he's, he's actually writing. Uh, chapter 15, verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. So here's Paul He's in the process of, of taking that uh, great collection of money uh, to help the church in Jerusalem, the saints in Jerusalem. And once he's done that, he's planning to go to a new mission field. He wants to go to Spain, and he wants to pass through the, uh, through the city of Rome. And so in a sense, uh, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, this is something of a missionary letter. He's writing as a missionary. He's wanting to get support for a future missionary endeavor. And he's thinking ahead and he's writing to the church in Rome, preparing the way for, for him to come and visit him, visit them. It's maybe unlike any kind of missionary letter you've ever heard. If you start reading the book of Romans, you think, I've never had a missionary letter like this before. Uh, but that's what it is. It's, uh, it's full of Christian doctrine all of the great truths of the gospel, and yet uh, his motivation for reading it is that he is an evangelist, and he's an apostle, and he wants to preach the gospel in new fields, and uh, he wants to get their support. Uh, The first few verses again tell us, the first verse tells us uh, something about Paul and how Paul sees his own ministry. Paul is described here as a servant of Christ Jesus. Actually, he's a slave. It's the same word. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. But more than that, he's called to be an apostle, which means a, a sent one. Somebody sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's part of that special category of those who knew Jesus, who met Jesus, and was sent out by Jesus uh, into the world in those earliest days of the Christian church. And he is set apart for the gospel. Now, I'll say, I'll say more about how he's set apart for the gospel in a few moments. But it's important to note at this point that uh, this is Paul's mission in life. To serve the needs of the gospel all over the world. Wherever there has not been the preaching of the gospel. Wherever the gospel has not been heard. That's where Paul wants to go. There's nothing more important to Paul than that he could get to a place 
where people could hear the gospel. And in this case, it's Spain. He wants to get there. Now, this is a letter to uh, Christians in Rome. And one of the interesting features of this church in Rome is that it wasn't planted by Paul. Paul had never been to Rome at this point. Paul went to many places and planted churches in many places. He planted many churches in Galatia. He planted a church in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and so on. He planted many churches around the Mediterranean. And uh, he would write to them later. But here Paul is writing to Rome when he hadn't been there before. He had not, simply not got that far west in any of his missionary journeys. Actually, the church seems to have come about through the witness of those who were uh, present on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Uh, nearly 30 years earlier, if you look back to Acts chapter 2, uh, you may remember that uh, Peter and his friends were standing up and speaking in languages that uh, weren't their own. Uh, amazingly, uh, they seemed to be able to communicate to people uh, that weren't uh, uh, native to Jerusalem. And in 2 verse 10, they, they start saying this. They start, they're saying, Parth, verse 9, rather, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, Libya beyond, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. All of these people were understanding something in their own language. On that day in Pentecost, there were visitors from Rome. And it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to believe that some of those were amongst those who are crying out to Peter at the end of his sermon, what must I do to be saved? To which the answer was, repent and believe and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thus the church was taken, rather the gospel was taken back to Rome by these converts it seems. And a church was planted without an apostle necessarily being present. Well, it's interesting what Paul calls them then. In verse 7, they are described as loved by God and called to be saints. They are people who have come to know that they are deeply loved by God because they have understood the nature of the gospel. And they are saints. And of course, what we mean by saints is not some special elite core of Christians, the kind of commandos or the, the royal marines of the, the Christian church, but ordinary Christians, every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is set apart by God to be useful to him, to be consecrated to him, to be devoted to him. Everybody who's a Christian is called a saint. And they are that by grace. And Paul marvelously assures them of that special relationship that they now have with God. Well, I want to dwell on verses 2 through to, through to 6 for the rest of our time. I've given quite a long introduction so far. Um, Paul doesn't, as I said, doesn't know this church personally. He doesn't know everyone in the church he needs to say something about who he is and why he's writing to them. And we get this remarkable passage 
where he introduces the substance of the gospel and how it unfolded in redemptive history. And so there are three phases of gospel history that we can pick out from these verses. In verse 2, there is that period before Christ. Verse 2. The gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then in verses 3 and 4, there is the person of Christ himself and his coming. And then in verses 5 and 6, there's that phase after Christ, where he speaks about the spread of the gospel to the nations. So these things, three things I want to just work through with you. Firstly, the gospel is not new. This is, it was there before Christ. There is a common misunderstanding, I think, that uh, when Jesus came along, he started a completely new religion. Some people think that. Um, you know, before, beforehand there was Judaism, and then Jesus came along and started something new altogether. Now, there is something, of course, radically new about the coming of Jesus. But we'll deal with that in the next point. But what we need to note here is that the gospel has deep roots in the Old Testament. Look at what Paul says. This is the gospel which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what scriptures is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament is still being written. Uh, Not all of it is yet recognized as Scripture. But Paul is saying here that the Old Testament contains the promises about the gospel that was to come. And actually, it goes right back to the Garden of Eden. We're going to be looking at that in our morning services in the open air. And Paul is saying that uh, the Old Testament contains all of these things. You may remember in, in the Garden of Eden, Eve was deceived into disobeying God. Adam went along with it, forgetting what God had told him. And then as the Lord is spelling out the consequences in chapter 3, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then referring to her offspring, he says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, speaking to the serpent. He is going to come. This seed is going to come. This offspring of the woman is going to come. And so you find right at the beginning of human history, this promise of the expectation of a child who would later come to defeat the controlling power of Satan. And it's this promise, I think, goes back to Genesis 3.15 that really defines the whole story of the Old Testament. And you can thread your way through the Old Testament and see how that promise in seed form in the Old Testament comes to fullness and fruition and flowers when Jesus appears. The promises are renewed and enhanced when they come to Abraham. As God makes promises about Abraham and his seed in chapters Genesis 12, 15 and 17. That through his offspring there would be blessing to the nations. Or the promises that come to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18. 
who would late, uh, about a prophet who would later come. Or to David, the king, who was told about another king who would sit on his throne forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. These are just a handful of, of examples. And there are many more, and there are many hidden references to the gospel in the Old Testament. And it's even more sophisticated than simply prophetic writings. Because it's even built into the patterns of worship in the Old Testament. Because in the patterns of worship there are signs of the gospel to come. For example, the sacrificing of the Passover lamb. As they are, the Israel, Israel is re, uh, released from slavery to Egypt. And do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? And he points to him and tells his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is the one to whom these Old Testament sacrifices of worship were pointing. Or take the temple, for example. The temple, the place where God promised to dwell in the midst of his people. In the midst of a nation. A place where forgiveness could be found for sins. Where where sin was dealt with. A place which represented, as it were, the rebuilding of a fallen, broken world. Did you know that? The temple is a a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that because of the elaborate carvings, amongst many other things, that are are present in the Old Testament temple. All the pomegranates, what's that all for? Speaking of a new heavens, a new earth, the beauty of a new creation. And Jesus... When he comes, he says this surprising thing about the temple. John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's speaking about the temple of his body, says John. In other words, Jesus was the one to whom the Old Testament picture of the temple was pointing. And that through his death and through his resurrection, sacrifice could be made for people and a new creation inaugurated. Friends, the Old Testament is full of gospel promises and pointers. Christianity is no new thing when Jesus turned up. Actually, it's embedded like a seed in the Old Testament. And it grows and it grows and comes to fullness and flowers as the New Testament awakens with Jesus. So there's that time before Christ. But secondly, the gospel is about Jesus. In verses 3 and 4, we move from the period before Christ to the life of Christ. And here's the main point. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And it's a deceptively simple statement. It reminds us, of course, that the gospel is not about living good, uh, giving us good rules for how we should live, or a vague notion of God's love, And therefore, everyone can do what they please because everything will be okay because God loves everybody. That's not the gospel. Nor is it about what the church can do to transform culture or politics or the environment or any of these things. Some of these things may be byproducts of the gospel, but they're not the central concern of the gospel. Rather, this gospel, its central concern is his son. Verse 3, what was promised through the Holy Scriptures concerning 
his son. It is about Jesus. And what Paul does now is he gives us a summary of the significance of Jesus Christ for the gospel. There's a couple of ways we can look at verses 3 and 4. The first is perhaps to do with his nature. What kind of man was he? And verse 3 emphasizes that he was descended from David. And that verse 4, he is the mighty son of God. And what this may do for us is to point to the classic Christian doctrine of the dual nature of Christ. That uh, he was at the same time fully man, born as a man, and yet he was the very son of God, God the son. And he had to be man to be man's savior, yet he had to be God in order to have the power to overcome. And that is, of course, a great truth about the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is here. But I don't think this is all that Paul is saying about Jesus. Because there is actually a second angle that you can look at this passage from. And that's from the point of view of the progress of time, of redemptive history. Paul is concerned about the pivotal place that the resurrection holds in the history of salvation. Because it's at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that it becomes clear and evident that Jesus is the Son of God in power. Now he's not saying that the declaration is powerful. Rather that after the resurrection, Jesus was seen to be in power. And so in these verses, we have a transformation that happens to Jesus. That before the resurrection, Jesus was all weakness. That he was in a state, as it were, of humiliation. He took upon himself human flesh to become just like us. Was like us in every way except without sin. He made himself nothing. And so he was utterly humiliated. He entered this state of humiliation. But after his resurrection, and during and after his resurrection, he was seen to be in a state of power. That he was truly the Son of God, the true King, possessing all authority from the Father, and now he is in a state of exaltation. And now Paul can say, Jesus is truly Lord. You see the transformation, the historical shift that goes from Jesus' state of humiliation To his state of exaltation. And the resurrection is the pivotal moment where that transition happens. It's the pivotal moment in history. And incidentally, you can't separate the resurrection from the death of Jesus. It makes no sense in thinking about his death. It all comes as a kind of connected passage, although it's distributed over a few days. But it is a connected passage. As Calvin called it, synecdochic, whatever that means. You mention one, you, you incorporate the other. Resurrection, you incorporate his death. If you speak of only his death, we preach Christ and him crucified, you're also speaking about his resurrection. Synecdochic. Maybe that isn't helpful. But it's, it's that death and resurrection that become the content now of the preaching of the church, of, of the gospel. And the church planting that Paul did had as its center and core message 
Jesus has risen from the dead. He has died and he has risen from the dead. And it's the implications of that which Paul goes on to explain in the rest of the letter in more detailed form, which brings us to our third point. That this is a gospel for the nations. So this is now after Christ. After Christ came. This is the gospel that is the content of Paul's preaching. And the very impetus behind his ministry. Which he now explains in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He recognizes, you see, the privileged position that he has. That he has been given this position of grace and apostleship. Grace, he has been shown favor from God which he, when he actually deserved condemnation. And if we learn nothing else from Paul, I think when you study his letters and you see these little comments he makes, he was forever full of gratitude for the fact that his life was completely turned around from being a persecutor of the church to being a gospel preacher. And he's received grace, and it's his privilege to be able to proclaim that grace to the nations, to whoever will hear him, to go where it's never been heard before, to proclaim that grace. And he has that grace of apostleship, literally a sent one. Paul has been sent out into the world. He received that call on the Damascus Road, didn't he? On his way to persecute a church. And he was rudely stopped by our Lord Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus. And so significant is that to Paul that in the book of Acts, he tells uh, the story is told three times. Three times when the testimony of that event is told. And Paul's life is never the same again after that encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus sends him with a commission. To take the gospel, not to his kinsmen, to the Jews, but to all nations. And his job now is to preach that good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus to the world. And to call the nations to what he calls the obedience of faith. I don't know if you've ever thought about faith in that way. That it is actually an act of obedience. That when God gives the ability to believe, then you're commanded to believe. And you get on with it. But it is the obedience of faith. And everything that flows from that living faith, the obedience of faith. In other words, calling people. Paul's his business is to call people to wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. Not the kind of devotion that leads to a dry duty where you just turn up at church on a Sunday because that's what you're supposed to do. But a devotion that springs from true, heart-changing love and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the mission of the church as well. The church today, it's our mission. If we are members of this church today, this is our mission. And this is the application that I want us as Christians to take away today. We must be people who are gripped by this message. We need to be gripped like Paul was. Willing to lay down anything for him. 
if this is the central story of history, it's amazing to think that we are part of it, that we have been called into it, that we've been grafted into the church by grace through faith. And that this message that we proclaim is all about Jesus Christ, and our lives are for Jesus Christ. It's all about what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. Because if he has died and risen again, then it, yes, we must die. Not, and I'm not talking here just about physically die. But we must die to ourselves so that we may be raised to Christ as we put our faith in him. That all our old life is gone. That we might follow him. That as it were, we begin to experience the benefits of his resurrection as we first come to believe. And we are inwardly renewed. And one day we shall be outwardly renewed at the general resurrection. We must be gripped by this. It must define our lives. It must shape how we live. It must shape how we make, set our priorities in life. If we know Jesus Christ, we know what history is about, and therefore we begin to know what our own lives are about. And I wonder, as we finish, does that describe you today? Is that how your life is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his death and his resurrection, by his transformation from a state of humiliation to exaltation? Are you gripped by this great story of our Savior? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful gospel and this wonderful introduction to this letter. And we pray that you would help us in the coming weeks to really get a grip on what the gospel is, to see its richness and its depth, and to thrill at it and for our lives to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.